0: Hello, and welcome back to the pep talk podcast. I'm your host, Mark, and on this episode, I sit down with my friend and fellow PPE second year, Dom Smith, for an interview with University of York alum, author, and the lead political columnist at the Mail on Sunday, Peter Hitchens. Dom and I asked him about free speech issues at university, Brexit, and a few other topics. He also shared some advice on how to lead a career in journalism or politics, but it was really general advice for a successful career. Now, there's no getting around the fact that Peter Hitchens is a controversial figure. But I started this podcast with the goal of talking with people within the disciplines of PPE, coming from diverse backgrounds with a wide range of views. I think you'll find this conversation to be both engaging and lively, but that's uh, enough selling it for me. Let's hear from the man himself. All right. So thank you, Peter Hitchens, for coming on, uh, on the podcast. We're happy to talk to you. And, uh, well, so far, it's
1: a pleasure. We'll see how that
0: goes. <laughs> uh, I
2: suppose we will. OK, so uh, my question, Peter, I- I'm Dom Smith, by the way. Nice to speak to you. My question, first of all, is, uh, you know, re- reading about you, I've heard you described as both a Burkean Conservative and also as a Social Democrat. They seem to me to be, you know, to be quite at odds with each other. So, you know, c- can they be reconciled?
1: Well, all these things are nonsenses, really. I'm Burke... Edmund Burke was, in fact, a Whig, not a Tory, and so to describe as a conservative is complicated in the first place. Uh, and social democracy is a very broad church, a bit like Church of England, or rather what the Church of England used to be. And what it in my case, what it means is a willingness to recognise that the state has a role uh, in making sure that people don't fall below certain standards and in in organising things which cannot conceivably be done by by private individuals or indeed by private companies, take for example one of my favourites, so it's the railways. Uh, you couldn't really have a functioning railway system at this stage in our civilization unless the state managed it. Attempts to do so without it never worked. Nor could you have armed forces. It seems to me that having once accepted that, you can accept that various other things can be tackled by the state, including welfare state, to some extent, uh, pensions, education, uh, public transport, I said, housing. And that makes me a social democrat. I also think that if you're seriously concerned with keeping society, as uh, I put it, in a state where it can remain stable, where people can live reasonably free lives under the rule of law, the chances are you're going to have to do things like that in the modern world. So i I, I in a way, I like to confuse people who want to categorise me as one thing or another. But I think it would be difficult as uh, to say that I wasn't a social democrat if you looked at the things that I supported. Though it doesn't mean that I endorsed the programme of any particular party.
2: So, so uh,
1: As for, as for Birkin and Conservative, and that's really shorthand for saying that you believe that people uh, should, as far as possible, be allowed to live under their own consciences and to be directed by their own consciences rather than being ordered about uh, by officials enforcing an external law, uh, this, the most fundamental point which which Burke made was that the the more men were prepared to govern themselves, the less the state would need to govern them. And I think that's very important. That's something which we should bear in mind, because that that takes you to the next stage of the argument, which is how are men going to decide to govern themselves? I believe that this is best done uh, by a widespread observance of the Christian religion, particularly the Protestant version of it, but. Uh, that that is a, probably a subject for another day. You do want to discuss, but all these things locked together into a basic belief that's, uh, that men are free uh, to the extent that they, that they are willing to control themselves and that one should try and create a society in which they can be as free as possible and make their own decisions as far as possible. I think that there's no such thing as an ideal society, but that seems to me to be the, the most desirable form.
2: OK, so, so I suppose... I do not make sense.
1: It, it, it does. It, it does.
2: So, so I suppose you're reconciling it in that sense, that, that it's a mixture of civil liberties in a kind of social aspect and then slight you know, slight economic intervention where necessary.
1: Yes, well, I don't think... Well, I'm absolutely not as one of these people who calls himself a libertarian. Libertarianism is a, a nonsense. The idea that, that, that freedom could be made to principle is absurd. As Karl Marx correctly said, no man fights against freedom. He fights against... The freedom of others and for his own. And often freedoms will conflict. If you make freedom into a principle, you'll get chaos, and probably license as well. So you have to work out a society which is it's practically possible for men and women to be as free as possible. Not least because people grow more as human beings, the more they're able to take their own decisions and to have that freedom. But ultimately, all freedom has to be based on a, on a form of order. And if that form of order is uh, is destroyed by economic catastrophe, by millions of people being so poor, uh, so workless, so uneducated, they can't actually function as proper citizens of a civilized society. What's the point of that? So, if you really want that to happen, you have to you have to be able to provide the safety nets and the restraints which create the possibility of freedom.
0: If I could push you on something that you said, uh, sort of near the beginning, that the sort of political ideologies that Dom mentioned, the sort of Burkean conservatism and the sort of the the liberal aspects of your beliefs. You said uh, you said that they're sort of sort of nonsense. What exactly did you mean by that? Is it that is it that the sort of political labels are putting people in, in in boxes too much or used to castigate people? Or is it just that there's no utility in using political labels these days? Where sort of do you fall on that?
1: There's so, some use it, but they shouldn't be taken too far. And to try and elevate Edmund Burke into a into a political philosopher, I think, will will, will strain your mind. It's not really what he was. Uh, the, the the message of the of his greatest work, the reflection on the Revolution in France, is a huge mistrust of utopianism, which doesn't have all that much to do with uh, or we can you can connect it up, but it's not the, it's not really the same thing as his statement that that that. Freedom depends on our willingness to restrain ourselves. He, he, he thought profoundly about things and said some very intelligent things, rather beautifully. But I don't think there's a philosophy there. And as for social democracy, I find that the the officially left wing parties in most Western countries, are so the the Democrats in the United States, and the, the the Socialists in France, the SPD in Germany, and the Labour Party in Britain have almost entirely moved away from the old social democratic principles of, uh, of, of providing for the, the welfare of the poor, uh, that they were built on, and they no longer follow that. So it doesn't mean anything in, 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 if it's simply considered as a term. It's a starting point for an explanation, I think.
2: Um, I'd like to ask you about free speech in universities, because I have a feeling that will be something that you have, um, well, I assume, a, you know, reasonably strong opinion about. So, so last week, the, the government introduced a piece of legislation that will enable speakers who are censored or no-platformed to sue universities on the grounds of infringement of free speech. W- what do you make of that proposed law?
1: Well, I think it's probably a complete waste of time. It's the Conservative Party trying to join a, a, a campaign which I think suits a part of its voter base that it's realized it's been neglecting. I doubt very much whether these provisions could ever be activated. And in any case, what they do is they run against an enormous tide uh, in the academy which believes very strongly uh, that freedom of speech is actually something which needs to be restrained. I, I grew up on the basis that everybody believed in the freedom of speech and that it was a good thing accepted by... Uh, everybody in this country. I now know that that's not the case. Very large numbers of people think that freedom of speech of the sort that I would like uh, is, a, is a danger, an indulgence to bad people, and something they're very happy to put limits on. They're not ashamed of doing so. And the fascinating thing about modern universities is how shameless they are about trying to live in free speech. And I don't think that, that anything other than a cultural and moral revolution or counter-revolution, as big as the one we've experienced in the last 50 years, can change that. I certainly don't think a few gestures by, the, by a Tory government could alter it. So no, I, I I think this is something which has happened and continues to happen, and you're not going to fight it like that. And in general, my view is that the battle has been lost. And I always draw the contrast in free speech discussions between myself now, uh, somebody so wicked that a, a university can actually uh, no-platform me, uh, or in one case where i I decided I would rather speak in the open air than undergo the Inquisition that was demanded before I spoke at Liverpool. Uh, From having been a a, a Trotskyist uh, intolerant horror, uh, who back in 1972, I think it was, tried very hard to prevent Professor Hans Eysenck from speaking at the University of York, which I did. And the interesting thing then was that there were huge numbers of people at the University of York, both among the, the, the lecturers and among the students, who strongly disapproved of me and my fellow de- zealots as we tried to stop Professor Isaac from speaking. Uh, nowadays, there's very little opposition to it at all.
0: Yeah, I, that's very interesting. and I think it uh, leads sort of naturally to a discussion of a sort of very popular and somewhat contentious issue, which is the sort of notion of of hate speech. And whenever there's a sort of discussion of, of free speech today, it seems like there is a, a, a pushback that comes from I mean, a very understandable perspective of wanting to limit the amount of hateful speech that people are subject to, people have to sort of uh, listen to, be even degraded by in some circumstances. Uh, how far do you see a role for the, the definition of hate speech? Uh, who defines hate speech within our sort of modern political dialogue? Or should it just be free speech? That's the end of it. We shouldn't even t- be talking about hate speech. My, my own view has been
1: from the start that there's quite a lot of jurisprudence around the First Amendment in the United States. Uh, there's a very interesting book, which I recommend to anybody who's talking about this, called The Shadow University, which discusses, because, as you possibly know, if a university in the United States is, is a state university, then it's covered by the First Amendment. And so if there are attempts to restrict speech there, they can be tested in the course. And it's much more complicated than it first appears. And the old "you can't shout fire in a crowded theater, you can't incite violence, are not really quite enough. You have to recognise that there are that the, that the frontiers are a bit hazier than that. But the problem is that that the the concept of hate speech, in the hands of the people who now dominate uh, the academy and increasingly the media, uh, is one which can be used to shut up practically anything you don't like, and it. The the success of what we have to call political correctness, because there is no other term which sums it up, has been driven hugely by the fact that it enforces good manners. It says to people you really shouldn't abuse various types of persons who you you either disapprove of or don't like. And I think almost any civilized person has to say, well, that's a good thing. The the, the nasty words which we use to describe uh, various people in our society, even as recently as 20 years ago, I'm glad to see the back of them. And I I get quite cross when people supposedly on my side start using such terms or or, or yearning for their use. And so even I am sucked in by part of this. But the problem is who's enforcing this? And uh, and on on, on what grounds is almost nothing which can't be classified as hate speech if you draw your lines broadly enough. And this is similar to the famous development after the first reporting of the Stephen Lawrence murder, where anything which anybody perceives as a racist remark, therefore was a racist remark. It all becomes so subjective that there is no contesting it. And so you're basically in a position of lawlessness. Almost the worst form of lawlessness is one in which nobody actually knows what is legal. And this is increasingly becoming the case in speech. Nobody knows what is permissible and what is not. So and so people, it, people are, are suddenly be? find themselves being caught out by uh, uh, sometimes stupid things which they, they, they would say in private, but not in public, sometimes just by stupid things which they say. But th- there is a very unclear boundary, and I think that's always bad. Uh, it would be better if we could retreat, as I say, to the, to, to, the, to the more carefully worked out limits of the First Amendment described in the shadow university. But again, you can't have a First Amendment in this country. Because the First Amendment is based on the idea that, that, uh, the, that Congress is, is subject to the Constitution, whereas in this country Parliament is uh, Parliament is supreme. And so you could never do it. You couldn't make a law say, Parliament sh- shall make no law uh, restricting freedom of speech. It, 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 we have to try and copy it in some other way. But as I, say, I don't think that the, the prevalence of the idea of hate speech in the Academy uh, is is a good thing. I think it means that speech is far too limited. And sometimes you have to pay a rather unpleasant price for free speech, because free speech is ultimately about allowing freedom to people you don't like, and sometimes people whose ideas you intensely dislike and whose manner of expressing them you intensely dislike. And I I think the the border has to be drawn so that you have have to allow that, otherwise it isn't free.
0: Yeah, very interesting. If we could sort of turn this discussion to a more general look at free speech and sort of free speech online, not just outside of uh, universities. It seems like we've sort of reached a point where a few massive media companies uh, sort of referee the, the online political dialogue in that sort of sphere. And at the same time that they claim to essentially be public utilities that anybody can use, they have sort of teams of moderators that make decisions to restrict or promote certain types of content. In your view, how far are they responsible for the content on their platforms, and have they been consistent in upholding that responsibility and enforcing their rules?
1: Well, it, it, I'll answer the second question first. I don't think they have been consistent. I think they're, they're now getting quite worried that the way in which they're behaving makes them look increasingly like publishers, which would then make them much more subject to regulation. Uh, but on the other hand, who's going to take charge of this? Uh, the, the the modern state is incredibly weak in the face of these giants. And it has surprising little power to do anything about them, especially when the modern state is defending freedom. If you have a modern state like that of China, uh, which wants to suppress freedom, and it goes to some of the internet giants and says, will you will you help us do this? Uh, they have often responded by saying, well, yes, actually, we will. And I don't, again, I don't, this I have sometimes described the modern world as, as the, the hideous love child of Margaret Thatcher and Deng Xiaoping. This is a, a, a combination of wild free markets, uh, capitalism, and extremely repressive attitudes towards speech and thought. Uh, but combined, I have to say, with a with a, a, a very relaxed sexual morality. So the loins are free, and, and the, the the brain is under control, and. I see this developing, and I don't, I don't get the impression that the, 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 the big internet companies are full of people who carefully study the nature of human freedom and who feel very strongly that it should be preserved. I'm not quite sure why it is that they take the, the how shall I put it, the limiting attitudes that they do take, uh, but it's quite clear that the, they're not run by people who, who view freedom uh, under the law as being the keystone of civilized society. They have a, they, they they tend much more in the direction of utopianism and of believing that the utopia which they desire is so good that anybody who doesn't like it is not just wrong but bad. Uh, I see so many totalitarian tendencies among people who would never identify themselves or recognize themselves as totalitarians in modern society. And they seem to be present in the Internet companies
2: um if i can just take this slightly more philosophically for a moment i mean i think i think my understanding uh, of free speech and free thought is that when 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 humans were first evolving you know many millennia ago um it, it was the case that they were refereeing each other in terms of what they did uh, and then maybe a few centuries ago it started um being re- refereeing in terms of what each other was saying do you think we're we're turning up at the, at the point now where it's it's more about what, what we think, you know, you know where we refereeing what each other think.
1: Well, I wouldn't necessarily agree with you about the origins of this. I think it was a very happy accident uh, that created, in particularly in the Anglosphere countries, a form of freedom, which was, has several almost unique characteristics. It's, it's, uh, the adversarial parliament, the adversarial courtroom, uh, the, the existence of jury trial, the presumption of innocence, these things are said, incredible pieces of luck, uh, which happens to, to this country, and which handed on more or less to nobody else but the other anglo countries, and then not completely. And it's been, it's worked extraordinarily well, but I'm afraid it's uh, it's no longer valued or understood, and. Uh, I'm, uh, People, a lot of people decide they don't like it. It's very inconvenient to absolute power. If you have, for instance, the people go on and on about the vote as if this was a decisive uh, aspect of a free society. There are plenty of unfree societies which have votes, and votes are terribly easily manipulated if you have enough money and enough control of, of the major media to do so. The thing which decisively, well, two things in my view, decisively ensure the freedom of... The anglosphere countries, so a jury trial with the presumption of innocence, which means the state can't just lock you up because it feels like it, uh, and the development of adversarial parliaments in which there is a constant opposition uh, to the government, uh, which is accepted as legitimate uh, as part of the constitution, and creates the possibility of an alternative government and an inch of difference between the parties in which we all live. And those things have proved increasingly inconvenient uh, and undesirable. They're not understood either by, by by most by most people now. I find the understanding of the, of the liberties of, of, of this country very, very slender and, and and very poorly educated in the schools and universities. So I've seen people start valuing them. But I, if you look at most of the world, there's never been much in the way of freedom of speech or free debate. Uh, they haven't really existed, and. Uh, they, or, or if so, not for very long, and the, a lot of countries which come under the, the democratic banner are actually surprisingly repressive in reality. I, I don't myself believe that any country which has large-scale pretrial detention uh, can really be free, uh, nor one where the presumptiveness of certain operating practice which jury trial compels. And, and We're surrounded by strong states which are formal democracies and have sort of free press, the sort of free media. When you examine them, they're immensely less so than in the anglosphere. So here we have this happy accident, uh, which we've enjoyed the benefits of for a few centuries, uh, but which is, I think, now coming to an end. I'm very sad to see it go, but I don't see any sign anybody really wants to defend it very much.
0: On the on the basis of that, I'd be interested to hear your opinions on individuals like Julian Assange and uh, Edward Snowden, who sort of pointed out the hypocrisy within within governments within institutions that sort of purport to follow these sort of historic uh, like you said happy accidents that we've sort of come into as a freedom sort of loving society uh what would you have to say about them and their the steps that they've taken to sort of hold hold on to the the sort of freedoms that we've been talking about
1: well i don't Exactly the same, uh, Mr Assange and Mr Snowden. But in general, I think that I I have, although I don't, I don't like Julian Assange very much, and I have some difficulties with some of the things that he says and does. I have very much opposed his extradition to the United States, and within limits, one has also to defend a lot of the things which people such as Edward Snowden have done, however much you, you You worry that there are limits beyond which they may have trespassed. Uh, and that I, I try to be very much on the side of freedom of these things. Uh, but I, I don't, I, I've always been a bit vague on the details of the Snowden case, so I don't really want to get too involved in talking about it. In the Assange case, I have been involved, because I found to my surprise, I was very, very few British journalists who was prepared to say openly that he shouldn't be extradited, uh, which came as a shock to me as well as to others. Yeah, that all seems that, like an I, incredible. I, I, I'm, shock. I'm about that.
0: That seems like an that's an incredible shock to me that you sort of stood alone with journalists that sort of purport purport to um, hold fast to free speech that they would. Yeah, defend. the fact that it
1: was me doing it as well, all people. I, I, it's extraordinary, <laughs> there it is. It, it tells you a very interesting thing, I think, about the the modern left, particularly in journalism. Which is the left used to be reliably on the side of two things: but on the side of, of civil liberty against overmighty states, and it tended to be suspicious of uh, of wars of choice. And now I find dealing with left-wing journalists, they tend to be quite enthusiastic about wars of choice. And the enthusiasm for for going to war in Syria, for instance, on the uh, on the political and journalistic left in my country, is extraordinary. And the and also utterly. Uh, Uninterested in, in defending Julian Assange, I just agree that the Guardian did eventually come out and say quite clearly that it was it was against his extradition. But it took a while for them to do so. It seemed to me, and, and, and it wasn't if many of their individual writers had come out and said the same thing. And I think the reason for this is that the left is now in power, and the wars of choice which uh, which are now being proposed tend to be idealistic wars uh, rather than uh, rather than cynical ones and therefore they are more inclined to support them. I'm still slightly baffled by the intensity of the desire to go to war with Syria, a country which I find whose government, I find repellent, and have said so on the record for many years. I still think exactly why is it that there is such a desire to go to war in that direction? I don't know, but it it does seem to me that the left gets closer to power, which it it has done uh, in a huge cultural and moral revolution over the past 50 years, Uh, the less interested it is in liberty and the more interested
0: it is in making war. Well, you you sort of indicated that it is the the left that's in power. I'd like to sort of push you on exactly what you meant there, because, I mean, in the UK there is a Conservative government. You mentioned the sort of necessity of that uh, sort of adversarial parliament, and it sort of seems like the UK and the US still have this adversarial system Oh well, we have
1: them. We have them technically, but actually, I I wouldn't want to speak about the United States. I've I've always found American politics hard to penetrate, and it sticks to the country. I do know, which is my own. The British Parliament has not been adversarial for some years. Uh, the what happened was, first of all, Blairism, which is basically Eurocommunism, uh, triumphed at the polls, and then triumphed culturally. What what happened for the previous fifty years is that Britain had been undergoing a a sexual, moral, cultural, and educational revolution, uh, but not a, as yet a political one. The 1997 victory of New Labour meant that the people who'd been victorious in that cultural revolution were now politically in power as well. And one of their main intentions, particularly with the gigantic majority they had on the, the on first election, uh, was to browbeat and club the Conservative Party into accepting their policies. And under David Cameron, that's what the Conservative Party did. Of course, the, the modern equivalent of the, of the Vatican in Britain is the BBC, which is the, the body which bestows blessings and approval on political parties and which prevented the Conservative Party from having the faintest chance of winning any elections between 1997 and 2010. As soon as the Tory party adopted Blairism, the BBC was prepared to treat fairly again. It began uh, to see some chance of coming to office. But the two parties are essentially identical. The Conservative Party may call itself a Conservative Party, but that's never meant much and it means nothing now. There is no, it's I have quite a lot of fun. I have somewhere on my bookshelves behind me a a little manual put out by the German Democratic Republic, Communist East Germany in the 80s, about all the wonderful policies they were pursuing. Most of them are indistinguishable from the policies now adopted by the Conservative Party of of, uh, the Conservative Unionist Unionist Party of of Britain. So uh, the the, the extent of the transformation Of Western Conservative parties into politically correct, say cultural, moral, social, and educational radical parties is uh it seems to me to be underappreciated, to put it mildly, but it, there's no doubt about it. And that's where the people who, my generation, are uh, the long march through the institutions lot, the people who were at university in the late 60s and early 70s, uh were some of them them were were like me, I was very specifically, ideologically, dogmatically Marxist-Leninist, and I read the stuff and and, uh, and took it all seriously at the time. Many, many more people were sort of vaguely revolutionary, but didn't get as theoretically engaged, and continued to be revolutionary. uh, Once they they went into the careers which they then followed, in particularly in education, uh, in the law, uh, in journalism, and of course, in the, in the undergrowth of politics, this the special advisor industry and all that, where, where so many of them ended up. And what you find if you look, and I wrote, wrote, wrote a long article about this a couple of years ago, is that a very large number of, of, of members of Blair's cabinet were uh, supposedly former Trotskyists or communists. how former were they? Everyone will come back to me and say, but you used to be a Trotskyist. Of course course I was. But the thing is different between me and, say, Alan Milburn or Stephen Byers or Blair himself is that I talk about it. I'm absolutely frank about it. You ask me anything about my time as a Trotskyist. I'll tell you as factually as I can what I did, what I thought, uh, who I associated with, uh, what I was up to. Blair himself did not admit to having been a Trotskyist until about two years ago, years after uh, he'd stop being an active electoral politics. Uh, you won't get Byers or Milburn or Alistair Darling or or, um, or or most of the others or Peter Mandelson to talk about their time in Marxist organisations because it still matters. Uh, and, and how many of them were there? We don't know. I tried to get my uh, MI5 records a few years ago. And uh, they told me eventually that, uh, the, the, under some pretext they, they wouldn't give them to me. I think the reason why they wouldn't give them to me is that in the early years of New Labour, all the MI5 records of what were then called left-wing subversives were destroyed. So we have no way of finding out. But I'll bet you there are a lot more people in New Labour who were, who, who were, actually, uh, who were actually on the, the, the revolutionary left in the 1960s and 1970s than we've ever found out. And you only need to look at the ideas they pursue to see them, but they're not. I, we, we We moved on from from seizing the barracks and the railway station and the post office to seizing the television studio and the newspaper and the school. and it's, it's been a Gramscian revolution, not a Leninist one, and that's the big difference. But that apart from anything else, it's a lot easier, isn't it? You can carry on pursuing a very nice, well-paid career in television. Uh, while still being a Gramscian revolutionary, it would be much harder to do that if you're learning this. (laughs)
2: Um, I think it would be a real waste of our our conversation with you today if we didn't at least ask a couple of questions um, relating to Brexit. And I appreciate you don't have a magic ball in which you can predict the future, but I'd like to ask you this. Uh, originally, it seemed that other EU countries over the next couple of decades might follow the UK in leaving the EU as well, and then it started to look less likely. Do, do you expect that the EU will lose more member states in the short to medium term, and why or why not? I never thought so. I think there's always been a possibility that the EU might
1: resolve itself into into two different blocks: a central one heading towards ever closer union, and an outer group uh, less enthusiastic about it. But like I, most of the uh, most of the new members of the past, uh, th- I don't know, thirty years, have joined the EU because of the advantages they believe they'd get from it and the protection they thought it would give them. I don't think they're in any hurry to leave. I think the, the the idea that lots of other people wanted to do the same as Britain has always been a, a fantasy of the more, um, how shall I put it, a romantic uh, mm-hmm. romantic pro-exit people. Uh, I, I I sense it. the reason why Britain has always had a difficulty with the European Union. The reason why I, for a long time, thought that our uh, membership of it was incompatible with our existence as a state is the particular difference between our laws and theirs. Uh, Apart from the Republic of Ireland, uh, there is no other country in the European Union which has has laws which are not more or less Roman civil code. Uh, They don't have common law. Uh, they they don't have the true presumption of innocence in their criminal code, and they operate as a result completely differently. And so that always seemed to me to be the reason why fundamentally we couldn't stay in. I I was never particularly worried about the trading arrangements. In fact, I, 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 as you possibly know, favoured the Norway option of staying in the single market. I'd stay in the customs union if I could. I could see absolutely no point in having a huge economic rupture. What I wanted was to get our political and legal institutions out of the European stream and, uh, and allow them to continue to develop independently. So, I, no, I, I say I think it's a, it's a, it's a fantasy uh, of a certain type of person to, to believe that the European Union is on the verge of collapse. People, the countries which have, most of the countries joined the European Union uh, did so by elite decision, but they, their elites had completely urbanised about what they were doing. The British elite uh, was deeply divided about joining the European Union, uh, and, and, it, and and could see grave disadvantages in it, and almost certainly made a, a wrong decision at the time because of the the catastrophic demoralisation which followed our national failure and defeat at Suez uh, caused the British governing class to go more or less to Lally. and they looked for somewhere, for anywhere, to, to make up for this, uh, this humiliation. And they turned to the European Union from mistake, because we, we could always be on good terms with them without joining. But we, we, Macmillan was absolutely set on joining, and, and we we're stuck with this result. And, and, and having joined, having gone deep into it, we now find that the, the penalties for leaving, which of course are not getting much attention because of the coronavirus crisis, are very heavy. And the City of London loses its, its first position to Amsterdam, and, and this is an enormous development, hardly noticed. The large numbers of small businesses are suffering greatly because of the, the problems of third country status, and the fishing industry is in a terrible mess, and all kinds of other things like this kind are going to come up. Uh, I think that Britain has many more problems with the form of exit it's chosen than the European Union has. I'm not the same European Union without internal problems and difficulties, it has huge ones. And the the single currency is going to create enormous strain over and over and over again, Already has done, particularly in the case of of Greece, and uh, I think Cyprus as well. But that doesn't mean it's going to fall apart, uh, or it would be particularly good for anyone in Britain if it did.
0: It's It's sort of easy to get embroiled in the sort of instant effects of Brexit on the UK economy, the European economy, and sort of get bogged down in the details there. But I'd like to sort of push you on a more uh, um, American style sort of Brexit argument and ask how far you sympathize with the sort of American federalist view that the uh, UK should have left, or England, and the UK should have left the EU because of uh, authority and political authority being as close to the people as possible and that more structural argument.
1: Well, that that is that is more or less my argument. I think Britain should should have its should have its own sovereign parliament, and it should have it should make its own laws and should reform its own laws according to its, to that parliament and within its own within its own sovereign boundaries. And I also think it should it should control its own borders, uh, two things which we which we had lost, more or less. Under the old dispensation, but it's quite amusing to hear that from the United States because it was the United States which actually uh, played a large part in propelling us into the European Union in the first place, and there was actually a CIA operation uh, designed to support this programme. It's one of the few that's have been documented because someone found all the papers in a cupboard at Georgetown University. It, the, the, the United States is always very keen on Britain being absorbed into some sort of European superstate, so that they could have one telephone number when it came to Europe, mm. and they. they So, But the United States is so different from Britain in so many ways that to to try and impose American, uh, how should I put it, um, states' rights, politics onto the European continent is never really going to work. American, American states, find organs as they are, don't really compare with fully formed nation states with long histories and their own armies, monarchs. Uh, currencies and uh, all the rest of it. I mean, sovereignty is not about national anthems and flags, it's about these hard things that you either have or you don't have.
0: Yeah,
2: interesting point. Um, w- one of the most uh, fascinating aspects to current UK politics is Scotland's fervent desire to continue pushing for independence and, in the meantime, for economic self determination. What do you expect Scotland's future
0: will look like?
1: I don't think scotland will leave the united kingdom I, I think it's almost certainly inevitable now i don't think anyone in in, in london has come up with any formula which uh, which can counter the, the, the extremely clever propagandizing of the scottish national party and the national mood in scotland sort of post Braveheart mood which is emotionally for independence so they, you, it's very hard to counter these things as so spain is discovering as well in catalonia uh, the, the the tougher they are on on the Catalonian independence movement, the more it seems to consolidate itself. So, so I resigned to that departure, I think whatever opportunity there may have been to prevent it was lost when when the Blairites brought in the de- devolution in the first place. And they thought it would uh, it, it, it would actually end the desire for independence, for a, in fact, fed it. So I think we just have to cope with this. And my view has for a long time been to say it's a Scotland we're very sorry if you want to go. We can't prevent you, uh, but and you're you're completely welcome to come back whenever you like. It will leave a light burning. There's no business about it. I can. I who who has campaigned for a, a British independence from European decision making? Uh, who can turn to the Scots to say, "How dare you ask for independence and decision making"? Uh, who who has been the victim of project fear stuff about oh, if you do that, it will be economic disaster. Can turn to the Scots and start threatening them with economic disaster if they secede. It, 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 it's totally inconsistent. I say I, I don't regret, and I love Scotland, I, my earliest memories are of Scotland, and I would be very sorry to see it go, but I, I don't think it can be prevented by either threats uh, or anger or, or coldness. <laughs> it, 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 if there is a formula for keeping Scotland in the Union, it, it, it very much is to say no nation. Should keep itself together by force. If you really don't want to stay, then you then 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 please leave. But remember, uh, we will keep the door open. And if you want to come back, we'll move heaven and earth to get you back in again with the least possible problem. I think that might be a much better key uh, to to if, if not preventing it, and um, meaning that it's in, in the long term maybe it, maybe there is a chance of, of reunification. But honestly. Uh, it's particularly for people who've been associated with the campaign to of the European Union, it's very difficult for them to oppose what Scotland is doing. And also, I, bitterness in these things is futile. We made the most terrible mess of Ireland in the early years of the 20th century, uh, and the, which ended with the catastrophic uh, executions of the leaders of the Easter Rising, which is a mistake which will echo down history forever. And we really should be very careful not to go down the same road of business with Scotland. If, they say, if, they, if that's what they want, then that's what they must have. Countries are entitled to be independent if they desire it. And if the Scottish people wish it, they must have it and, uh, and go with our blessing.
0: If I could turn the discussion a little bit more towards the uh, the University of York, because as many listeners will, will know, you're one of the notable alumni, alumnus from the University of York. And uh, I'm correct.
1: Well, you know, the University Challenge doesn't think so. <laughs> uh, whenever they, they 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 compile their teams of, of, of York alumni, I always get left off it. Um,
0: well, you, you're on, it, you're on it now, it. Mr. Hitchcock. Yeah, OK. Thank you. You're, you're on just, it now. <laughs> so uh, I just, just threw that
1: in because it, it cheeses me off. <laughs>
0: <laughs> how, how far would you say that your uh, politics and philosophy degree from the university prepared you for sort of your, your long career as a leading political columnist and, uh, and a pundit?
1: Oh, not at all, because I didn't do any work. Um, <laughs> I, I spent I spent my entire time at York as an active Bolshevik, uh, studying Marxism and and because things were so relaxed in those days, I got away with it. And that certainly had, had an impact. I mean, the fact that they let me get on with what I was doing, because I, I took, as I do, actually, I took the whole thing to the limits. Uh, I, I, I'd i like to take an idea to acknowledge with conclusions, and I was able to do that in the York of those days, which is... One of the reasons why I'm so much not a Leninist Bolshevik now. Uh, so I owe to York uh, the fact that i have far from being a Bolshevik. I'm now, for goodness sake, uh, a communicant member of the Church of England. Uh, not, not a place I traveled very much with my with my at the time, but I, that's what I am now. It's where I, I owe that to York, beyond doubt. Lots of other things, too. I had a lot of fun at York.
0: So uh, I want to push you just a little bit more on the sort of Leninism, Trotskyism sort of avenue of our discussion. And please correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like... uh, (laughs) Perfect, perfect. Please correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like your political sort of understanding comes from uh, a sort of principled stand in combination with sort of uh, nuanced understanding of real political issues. Uh, where did you come into that understanding, and and was it sort of after university, at the university, and how far did that sort of Leninist, Marxist, Trotskyist idea that you once held factor into that sort of turn?
1: Italy, you're, you're gazing, you may not understand this or realize how how unique your experience, you're gazing at an extinct creature. I I'm like this cap, which occasionally gets hauled up from the depths of the sea. I ought hmm. to exist. I. I was brought up in, in circumstances which are, are no longer imaginable to most people. My father was an officer of the Royal Navy, so I grew up in and around uh, naval bases and, uh, and, and listening to the, the things which people of that kind uh, thought. I was educated at cathedral choir schools, uh, amongst other places. and I, I grew up in England so wholly different from the one that anybody now experiences that it's hard even to begin to explain the mixture of Patriotism and, and faith and beauty with, with, with which I was inculcated at an in early stage. And I then went through a, a second stage, the, the, the gradual understanding of, of an 11, 12 year old boy of the Perfume affair, uh, and of the, of increasingly as I grew older of the serious catastrophe which had uh, preceded it. And I realized that what I had been brought up to believe had been discredited uh, about this country. And also the people who had taught me this had lost their authority—the the ludicrous, uh, the, the ludicrous performance of the perfume affair—and so I was a person with a, a profound faith, and nowhere to put it. And when I discovered in my teens the, the powerful attractions—and there is no doubt of them—of revolutionary socialism, I embraced them because I had a huge gap in my in, in, in my life, which which they filled. The problem was that they then went on to disappoint me as well. It became clear as I lived my life, that they weren't actually applicable to reality. So I had to drop that. And I spent many years in a wilderness of, of, of doubt and unknowing, not knowing where to turn. And where I am now is a result of that, I think if I was still a Marxist, I'd, I'd say something about thesis, antithesis and synthesis here, but that's where I am. I I do know that I can and have changed my mind, and I'm conscious, therefore, that I could change it again, which means that I I believe hugely in the, in the, the tolerance of opposing opinions and in trying as far as possible to be civil and rational in, in argument, which is a principle. I also hate utopianism. I became extraordinarily suspicious of of utopianism. And and I saw it as a way to bloodshed and and misery. But of course, it was an attractive way of bloodshed and misery. People, it it looks nice until you're a long way down the path and you you suddenly realise where you've gone. So I thought it was a duty to be against that. My other great advantage is is more than 40 years in what I call the University of Fleet Street, where I've had extraordinarily fortunate. In having lived in the final months of the Soviet Union's collapse, as who travelled greatly in many many countries which are not free, uh, or, or which are utterly different from from this country, and so I've had a, also a second education, which has very much brought home to me uh, the the need for for tolerance and for preserving the freedom that we have. Uh, especially and also, maybe very very hostile to so going abroad and telling other people how to run their countries, which seems to me to be none of our business. So the, all these things put together, the early, the early years growing up as a as, as a patriot and Christian, the disillusion, the embrace of revolutionary socialism, the the, the, the long years uh, unanchored by any real belief, the return to Christianity, the enormous educational power of travel as a, as a journalist to other countries has left me with what I very very much fear is a unique uh, respect uh, for liberty out of the law and the unique desire not to make war on other people. But I, these still seem to me to be opinions worth expressing and getting across as many people as possible before I die.
2: Uh, I think we've got time for just one more question now, Peter, and I think it's one whose answer will be valuable to, um, you know, any York student studying any of the degree programmes covered by philosophy, politics and economics. And it's simply this. What what advice would you give to York PPE students listening to this who may want to follow on us and find success on a similar career path? To to yours.
1: I, I can't... There is no recipe for success. Now, I've been extraordinarily fortunate. I had Providence has smiled on me again and again, and it may not on other people. You, 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 uh, uh, I have to say, in the course of, 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 of my long life, there have been moments when I've despaired uh, of the trade that I was in, and being extremely dispirited and, and thought seriously of, of leaving it. And that, that often, these things happen the moment before the most enormous strokes of good fortune, which to transform life. so one thing to be aware of is that you you really do not know what's going to happen next well I'm not so I'm not an advocate of or an advisor of success or how to make friends or influence people things I'm very bad at in both cases i what I would say is that if you if you want to seek a good life uh, then you really need if, you, if you're interested in reforming anything that the, the thing you need to reform most of all is yourself. That there are genuine rewards uh, in that, and that in pursuing any career, I think, particularly if it's a if it's a career to do with politics or journalism or the law or anything like that, they, they, they always keep in mind the, the the Christian virtues, which are not accidental uh, but are vital to the to the to the action to the living of life. You will fail. Uh, on many occasions to abide by them, I certainly have. Uh, but on the other hand, they will give you a, a, a purpose and a definition uh, and a quality in your life which you will otherwise not achieve. I, the, it's the only form of idealism which I can really endorse because it doesn't. It's, it, it sets out to reform the individual who embraces it, rather than telling other people what to do or making other people do things. Uh, so that's it. I'd say while you're doing your course, whatever it is slip into the minster one evening uh, even song, hide behind a pillar play no part in it but let the haunting rhythms of the eternal into your life and it won't you any harm
0: well i'd like to say uh thank you for coming on peter hitchens it's been a pleasure speaking with you thank you very much
1: well it's nice you to me thanks a lot
0: lovely